All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, this is my punchline. I think we can all now go to Disney World. Um, first of all, I want to begin by thanking um, Miguel and Stephen uh, for trusting me with this talk. I don't know if it was like a good sense of humor. They said, hey, we'll pick Maria to give this talk. Or, uh, or if they really thought that maybe I had some insights. I, I hope it was the latter. But I think that I, I will tell you that this, uh, that this talk was really not only my inspiration, but like I asked my friends, uh, my lab meeting, I really have given this a, a lot of thought. Um, so maybe this is the, the placebo clicker. <laughs> and... I got randomized to, to placebo. So in this conversation about what it's going to take to cure, you know, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, I could cheat. And I could tell you, well, we don't know what causes it. So therefore, how could we cure something that we don't know what causes it? Although I'm not going to take that easy way out, right? Because they gave me 30 minutes, for God's sakes. And, you know, I'm on the big screen. I could say it's a matter of money, right? The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation will want me to say, if you gave us more money, we could figure this out. But I would argue that that's not necessarily true. And the data to support that is the war on cancer. So you may be aware, uh, for some of you that have gray hair, that um, Nixon declared the war on cancer and started spending more uh, NIH money to try to solve, um, solve cancer, as if cancer was a thing. And so $127 billion dollars have been spent on this war on cancer. And, and in fact, uh, although, you know, I'm not here to sort of throw under the bus people who do oncology research, I will, uh, obviously we know that we haven't cured cancer. And I would argue it's because scientifically knowledge needs to build. It has to be building blocks, right? And you need, you need a base on which to build. And some of those building blocks um, are in evolution. And therefore, some of the advances, whether it's in the world of oncology or in the world of HIV, needed to have some other basic understandings before we could crack that nut. However, we've had tremendous advances in our fields, and I think the, um, we led the charge of studying genetics in a complex disorder like IBD. I, I think as a field, we should be proud. Um, obviously, the microbiome, the whole party began with us, uh, with the gut and with its relevance for IBD. And then the other posers got on that bandwagon, the, the, the people who like study fat people and all that jazz, right? Those, those came later. Um, I think that other advances that are in progress are these early cohort studies where we have investigators that are going through the trouble of really trying to find early, like newly diagnosed, not been treated, et cetera, et cetera, to understand the early events and even the pre-events, people who don't actually know they're going to get IBD, right? So these are going to lead us to advances in the future. And I think we're beginning to have now diet intervention studies being properly done. Every patient, what's their first question, right? What should I eat, doc? And I think we need, uh, we now are developing better methods in order to, to study that. So, um, so then one way to cure, I would, uh, to cure IBD is not let it happen, right? So how can we prevent someone from developing IBD? Well, in that case, you know, the, the rate of IBD is low enough that we can't all take a magic pill or be placed on a particular diet, although I would say to you that actually the diets that seem to be good for IBD are the diets that prevent cancer and prevent heart disease. So we, we could all be doing that, right? Um, I think that um, in that 
in that way, um, I'll tell you a little bit about the GEM cohort and, uh, and Jean-Fred's PREDICT study to really try to identify patients that are at high risk for developing IBD. And those are the ones that we need to target with that thing that will prevent the development of IBD. Or conversely, oh, did it change to placebo? Or conversely, could, be, could we be one and done? Could someone kind of come out of the gate, declare that they have IBD, have one flare of their IBD, and then be put into this long-lived remission, and we could argue about with or without drugs, and would we consider that a cure, right? And I'm here, this is, you know, in a way, a semantic issue, and in the words of Steve, Steve Hanauer, I don't want to be anti-semantic. So Charlie Lees is doing a PREDICT study with double C. Um, he's in uh, Scotland, and he is, and, and others are, are doing similar things, but he's sort of ahead of that game of trying to follow people longitudinally and figure out um, what causes them to flare, right? And maybe by figuring that out, then we can work backwards to try to have, to prevent flares altogether. Okay, so the GEM project, many of you know, is a study um, started in Canada but has become international in which uh, the investigators looked for, had um, uh, recruited first-degree relatives, unaffected first-degree relatives of Crohn's patients. Therefore, they're at a much higher risk of developing IBD than someone who has no family history of IBD, right? And they collected over 5,000 of these people, and so far, 70 people have developed Crohn's disease. And so the idea would be they've collected, as you can see, all sorts of information, diet information, their stool for microbiome, their you know, permeability and all that jazz to figure out what was there before they developed overt signs of having IBD, right? With the idea of saying, okay, if you've got this characteristic, you're the one who is at highest risk. And eventually, uh, the plan is that they're going to do an intervention study to try to prevent high-risk individuals from developing IBD. So stay tuned for that hopeful advance. This, uh, this uh, slide was, um, was uh, lent to me by Jean-Fred yesterday. Um, Jean-Fred has had, and his colleagues, access to thousands of serum samples from the U.S. Army. That's why he came to the United States, because uh, we have a bigger army. And uh, what they did was they, they, they now know some of those guys and women went on to develop IBD, you know, some Crohn's, some ulcerative colitis, and they have their serum for every year leading up to that person developing IBD. How cool is that, right? And what they've done is applied um, interesting methodology, and this is only just the beginning of all the methodology that could eventually be applied. One is to look at the traditional serologic markers that we are used to, the ANCAs, the ASCAs, etc., antimicrobial factors. Another is to use modern technology, the Somalogics is one platform that looks at proteomic approaches to look at all the different proteins that are expressed in that sera of those patients before they developed IBD. And they could, with a pretty high rate of certainty, say I, that they can predict who was going to develop IBD looking at that serum, right? So it has to be a pretty damn good test if they want to deploy it in all of us to say, here's a kid or here's a teenager, they're about to go off to college, let's do a blood test and see how likely they are to develop IBD so we can tell them not to smoke pot or do whatever the hell they're going to do in college anyway, right? So, we, so this has to be applied judiciously, but I still think this is optimistic that especially um, something like this in first-degree relatives that could be at high risk could be deployed. Interestingly, and interestingly, they couldn't find anything for ulcerative colitis, right? There was no hint that that kid or that, you know, that 
army uh, person was going to develop ulcerative colitis. They could predict Crohn's pretty well using this methodology, but not ulcerative colitis. So I think that that, that is a very important thing that tells us something. So I think there's some basic observations that we haven't reconciled. And one of the ways in which I, uh, you know, that I'm uh, made aware of some of the basic ways, things that like, yeah, I guess I never thought about that, is when you t- lecture to medical students, right? Like medical students have the best damn questions, like, you know, very basic questions. Why, why does it look like that, right? So one of the basic observations that we haven't reconciled is you may be aware that when a population develops IBD, it's ulcerative colitis they get first. What's up with that, right? And so there's a very rapid rise as we export McDonald's and other things to the rest of the world. The first thing they see is ulcerative colitis. We have a lot of uh, my friends from Brazil here, and you can see that in Brazil, um, the rate of ulcerative colitis is still higher than the rate of Crohn's disease. As the population matures in an IBD way, those two things start evening out, right? It's not that you have less ulcerative colitis, but now Crohn's disease starts, that starts coming into the picture. So again, what would do that, right? The genes aren't changing, so why is a population developing ulcerative colitis first and then as a follow-on developing Crohn's disease as a more mature thing. So this is a just published study in Cell, which I think is a, is a very interesting study. And what you can see is in this, uh, in this particular study, they followed Thai immigrants, Thai immigrants. Uh, oh, I should say pre, you know, they, they had the stool, they did stool analysis for the microbiome of Thais in Thailand. And then they studied them when they got off the boat. And then they studied them after they'd been living here, right, long-term residents, but they were born in Thailand and stayed, and then the children of those Thai immigrants. And you could see as they're getting, as they're here for long, here, here in the U.S. for longer, they start, uh, you know, turning blonde and blue-eyed. Uh, but from a microbiome, in a microbiome way, right? So their microbiome starts looking like, you know, like McDonald's, you know, that it's not as diverse, uh, you're, you know, you're missing some of the beneficial bacteria in, in a very simplistic way, and you have an overgrowth of the stuff that's probably bad for all, for all things that we could, that we could imagine. So I think the moral of the story is we should eat Thai food. Um, so I live in Miami. And that's south of where we are here. And it turns out there are just way too many Cubans in Miami. And these Cubans have been coming for a long time. They've been coming since the 1950s. I won't get into the, into the political discussion, but, you know, since Fidel took over, they've been coming. And so I have a wonderful, really smart young uh, a faculty member that I work with, Oriana Damas, and um, she did this study, and I, I'll, I'll walk you through it. She, we looked at, at um, Cubans that came to Miami over different eras, right? So the, the ones that came early, before 1980, the ones that came after the Mariel boat lift, and then they sort of trickled in, and then from 1995 to now, right? So, you know, after, you know, uh, by rafts and however way they could get themselves to the United States. And one of the really frightening things is that the most dramatic thing that's happening is that the time that it's taking these immigrants to develop IBD once they got to Miami is becoming shorter and shorter by a lot, right? So you can see that it started as a mean of 30 years. There were fewer patients back then, but now it's down to eight years, and you can and I've, I'm beginning to see that there's a shift that they're developing Crohn's right out of the gate rather than going through this UC phase, which we were seeing before. So it's almost as if, like a dose effect, if you give them a lot, like at one time of that thing, 
that causes IBD, that, that whatever that thing is, whether it's a very abrupt exposure to a diet or a very abrupt exposure to, I don't know, toothpaste, that they, it jump starts the development of, of IBD. And I think so. I think this is telling us something. Okay. So, you know, the, the, the conversation is like how, you know, let's cure IBD. What, what, if you stop and think about it, we're all internists here. What, what, do, what chronic diseases are curable? Well, infectious diseases are curable, right? And I think, you know, my husband is a hepatologist, which is why I have to give this talk, because they cured hepatitis C. He's got no job. <laughs> and so it was only a matter of time if you have one etiologic agent to make something that's going to stop it from growing and proliferating. I mean, I'm not making light of the great advances that it, that it took to cure hepatitis C, but, you know, been there, done that, it's one virus. For HIV, again, a semantic issue. Um, is it cured? I mean, uh, again, for those of us that have gray hair here, we now, we have drugs that they have no viral load. So again, is that a semantic issue? If you have no viral load, do you, you know, do you have this disease, right? even though you still have to take medicines. And cancer, is cancer curable? Is, is it even a thing? Cancer is not a thing, right? It's everyone has, a, has its own, their own thing. You can cure it surgically. You, you know, people are cured uh, from surgery and, chemo, and conventional chemotherapy. But I think now oncologists are understanding that they need to use personalized approaches and even trying to in, in, um, uh, invoke the immune system. And I'll, and I'll get back to that a little bit later in our, in our talk. So Who's going to be that? Is there someone going to win the Nobel Prize in IBD for finding the etiologic agent? For those of you who don't recognize Barry Marshall, uh, our gastroenterologist who won a Nobel Prize for his discovery of Helicobacter pylori. And again, uh, you know, the Australian GI Society would rate, write him hate letters like, you're embarrassing us, dude. What, what do you mean ulcer is ca ulcers are caused by a, a bacterium, right? So again, a prophet isn't recognized sometimes in his or her own land. Part of the thing is, is IBD one disease? And I think that the endoscopic appearance for those of us that do endoscopy of IBD tells us that this is not the same as that. Like those are two very different things, right? On the one hand, it's always starting in the rectum. It looks like someone took sandpaper to the lining. It's a diffuse process. And it's either like you really took a lot of sandpaper or a little sandpaper or something ate. Like someone ate my homework. Like someone took a bite out of this tissue. So on the left, you know what? You know when I was talking to Jean Fred, I think, is this bacteria making metabolites, and is it some diffuse, very superficial process, which is why maybe some somebody could flare so abruptly, people could change their microbiome very abruptly through variety of things. We all can, we all know that patient that took a course of antibiotics. They didn't have C diff, but you never could get, you couldn't save their colon. They just completely fell to pieces, right? Or in the case of Crohn's disease, is this like something invading the tissue, eating away at the tissue, right? But with what? Like what's invading that tissue, right? Um, I'll say to you that even if, we, even if it's, it is a bug, not all infections are curable, right? What if the etiologic agent can't be cured in a traditional way? And I, I feel like I should give some a little bit of, of face time to, this, to the mycobacteria story and the, the adherent invasive E. coli story. And what if there are unique or individual etiologic agents? How would we personalize the cure for that person? Like maybe it's not one bug for everybody, but rather it's more nuanced than that.
So I'll tell you a little bit about the map story because um, uh, Ira Shafrin is here, and I and I and I think that um, that it's an interesting story. You're familiar with the idea that in uh, cattle, this John's disease uh, looks like Crohn's disease and is due to Mycobacterium avium para uh, tuberculosis, and in fact, uh, people with Crohn's disease have a higher like higher rate of us finding this map in their tissues. So is that the etiologic agent? Well, I mean, all of us are, are exposed to this map, but, but I think that one way that we could reconcile that we don't all have IBD or Crohn's disease is that some of the defects, some of the genetic polymorphisms present in Crohn's disease might allow festering of something like map, right? And so uh, on the... So, What's hard to prove, though, is Cox postulates in this disease, right? We can't, it, it, it doesn't fulfill those, right? You can't grow MAP, give it to someone, and cause them to develop Crohn's disease. It isn't as simple as that, and it probably will never be that simple. But I think there's enough there that it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting uh, speculation that it could be uh, related. They've uh, embarked, this is a, um, a clinical trial that looked at multiple antibiotics to treat MAP, it depends on whether your glass half full or half empty. I um, I don't like the way the study was designed. At a year, there was no difference. And if you look factually at what they what they decided was their what were their endpoints for remission and response, they didn't quite meet them. Um, and so uh, you and I know that giving antibiotics can sometimes make people feel better, and they probably also have side effects that they knew they were taking antibiotics. So I'm not sure that this proves or disproves that MAP is, is, a, is a contributory agent in some patients. The um, adherent invasive E. coli story, um, same kind of idea. Um, I learned from Jean-Fred yesterday that in order to define a bug as this AIEC, it has to be done functionally, right? So again, that limits our ability to test a patient for it. it you know, it, it's an elaborate process to say, yes, indeed, you, you're, uh, Mrs. Jones, you have this bug that is causing this disease. It also, um, this bug is resistant to a lot of our conventional antibiotics. And so therefore, if I thought simplistically, well, Jean-Fred, it can't be this, right? Because I give everybody Cipro for something and they're not, they're not obviously better. Um, it could still be that patients that have this as a as a turning on point for their, for their Crohn's disease, we haven't, again, proven or disproven that we could make someone better if we got rid of it entirely, okay? So how do we target the microbiome in the, in the what I would consider the garden variety IBD? Um, I'll tell you that, and it'll be a little bit the punchline, you cause inflammation, inflammation will cause dysbiosis, okay? So concept number one. You take a dysbiotic microbiome, like a, like, a, like a bad microbiome, and you give it to an innocent mouse that's got nothing to do with IBD, right? Just hanging around germ-free. And you cause that animal to have now have a susceptibility to inflammation. So you can imagine in a human this feed-forward loop. If you've got inflammation, it causes dysbiosis. And the dysbiosis won't let that inflammation turn off. You follow my reasoning? Right. So, you ha so it's really... We have to come to terms with both of those ingredients in order to have a long-lived remission. So everyone wants to know about fecal transplants, right? And so, you know, we want to make the microbiome great again, okay? So how do we do that? Um, and it turns out that we know so little about what's missing in a patient with ulcerative colitis that's giving them the ulcerative colitis that we've got to take five to seven different donors tall, blonde, you know, lactose eaters, right? Like perfect specimens combined all together 
to try to make some headway, right? And so what this shows you is that the diversity of the stool in a, in a UC patient that's active is low. These dots, like on the, on the Y, is diversity, okay? It's low. They needed to combine five to seven, like make an Uber, Uber stool, right, of five to seven donors with a lot of diversity so that you could get somewhere in between. So this is after you've given them the stool transplant, they go somewhere in between. What does that tell you? That, you, that we have absolutely no idea what's missing and we need to pool all this stuff, but something is missing, right? I think that it means something is missing and needs to be replaced in the typical person with ulcerative colitis. We've taken a different approach in my lab, and I just wanted to show you that what we decided to do is to um, figure out if we could isolate the, the, in the lamina propria, right, from biopsies, um, the professional eaters of the, of the lamina propria, phagocytic cells, take them out and sequence and see what bacteria did they eat. What did they eat? And what, what might be harbored in, inside these cells? And to make, and this shows you a little bit of our, you know, preliminary data. Green dots are what they ate, the microbiome in, in lamina propria cells. In the blue dots are, is the microbiome living on the surface of the gut. And you can see that those two populations are slightly different, right? So that, in fact, if we did that approach, in the red are things that are overrepresented in these professional eaters, compared to what's living on the surface. So, I, so my point in, in showing you this slide is only to say that there could be a deeper level that we can sample for an individual person. What is dysbiotic about them? Okay. Um, is it okay that I'm a little... Are we okay? Okay, I'm a fine. I'm fine. Okay. <sighs> All right. So um, they're going to send me back to Miami packing. Um, don't look at the details on this slide. This slide is mostly for me to tell you that I think one thing that will be an advance in our field, not quite there yet, is this idea of long-lived remission. Who could we predict is going to develop long-lived remission? Um, you give someone whatever you, like all my colleagues talk beautifully about all these different drugs, okay? And, and we've all used them, and people could be fabulous. And, you know, and with TOFA, maybe 20 minutes later, they're fabulous, right, Brian? But... The, then the next question is, when can I stop them? They haven't been well for five minutes, and they want to know when they can stop it, right? So I think that one of the, one of the things that we're going to be able to use to predict who can stop it is some kind of a microbiome something to say, okay, your microbiome check went back to this healthy microbiome. You're good to go for some period of time off drugs. Okay, we're going to let you fly, fly without the parachute. Okay. Okay. Um, this um, also kind of makes the point in this graphical representation. This is a paper from, uh, that Jim Lewis and I did, that they, and, and this kind of represents some of the data from Jim and Gary Wu's paper, looking at the microbiome in kids that were given either anti-TNFs or enteral feeds. All it shows you is whatever you do to get someone better will make their microbiome less dysbiotic. In other words, however way you get there, whether it's enteral feeds, whether it's anti-TNF, over time, the microbiome starts looking like a healthy microbiome. So I thought, so I thought to myself, you know, like all the, all the yuppies are busy um, putting away cord blood when they have a baby, right? But maybe we should be putting away like healthy stool for a rainy day, like on like your happiest day, you know, on Disney World, you're having a great time. Maybe that's the day you collect your stool for some, for in case you get into trouble later. And there's all sorts of things that could be solved by good stool, as we all know. 
So another thing, uh, another, so, so I told you all about the microbiome, but I, I feel like now we need to go back to talking a little bit about genetics and genetics slash the immune system. In traditional IBD, the garden variety IBD that we all see, it's a mishmash of a lot of different genes all together having a little bit of an effect, okay? So therefore, it'd be hard to pick at genetically one at a time how we're going to make each of those gene defects better. Do you follow me? Right, hard to do that. On the other hand, there are children um, that develop very early onset IBD, where it's really a monogenic disorder. Someone married their cousin, and they have an often autosomal recessive form of IBD, okay? And so in these other cases, we now know that, you know, even, you know, bone marrow transplant with someone who's, you know, who's not mutated can fix, for example, IL-10 IL receptor mutations, right? So having a monogenic disorder opens up other possibilities, right? And so the other thing every patient has heard about is gene editing, okay? Unless you've been living really, really under a rock, um, you haven't heard about gene editing. And gene editing has been made possible by something called CRISPR, which is a cute, which is really cute technology that allows delivery of a fragment of DNA very specifically into the, into the genome and to replace a piece that's either missing, that's mutated, or to downregulate, there are all sorts of other variations on that theme, to downregulate gene expression, to upregulate gene expression. So it really allows very fine-tuned delivery of just the gene you need, yeah? Right into the genome. And so, con in, you know, in a controversial way, this dude uh, in China has made Lulu and Nana uh, that are the first babies born using this CRISPR technology, and I won't get into the details. It seems absolutely foolhardy and, and terrible what this what they did. But again, um, this is a potential for important diseases, right? We wouldn't be using this technology if it wasn't an important disease, and ideally it would be used at the level of, um, in this case, to totally prevent the disease. So what happens when we treat IBD one molecule at a time? We just heard all that, right? We heard our friends, my, my colleagues, all talk about sort of one molecule at a time. And really what, um, what I would argue is that something as potent as anti-TNF, you know, I hate to disagree with Brian because I, you know, think that he's right on most things. I think the Achilles heel of anti-TNF therapy isn't necessarily the safety profile, Brian. It's that you're asking for trouble if immunologically you target only one thing. If you target only the bullets, we're going to come at you with a grenade, right? Because if the immune system, if the immune system is uh, perceiving a pathogen, it wants to come at it in different ways. So these are our current targets of therapy. Um, again, we've made great advances, but we've left a lot on the table because in this scenario, except for the JAK inhibitors, which have the broadest effects, the broadest effects, all the other things that are just one thing at a time are unlikely to get us over that hump, okay? Can we target, but on the other hand, can we target a common pathway even if we don't know what causes IBD, you know, even if we don't know which bug or for which person which bug, can we, you know, target a common pathway? And, and, and uh, you know, I think that eventually we will downregulate some common pathway to this immune response. But I'll remind you that what I think of IBD is that the, the body is acting as if it has a pathogen. And so, therefore, if you try to block it from attacking that pathogen, you're gonna, the, immune, the robust immune system is going to find a way to get back at that target, okay? So, and and in, this, in the case of IBD, it may not be a true pathogen in the strictest sense of the world, word, but a situational pathogen. And broad suppression of the immune response against all pathogens, of course, can lead to a lot of systemic consequences. 
Um, the final little story I'll tell you is about checkpoint inhibitors and what, what might they teach us. Um, I would say to you that it's easier to get IBD than it is to put Pandora back in the box and get rid of IBD. And I think that's what checkpoint inhibitors have taught us. The oncologists have come up with ways to turn off T regulatory cells, to say to the T regs, forget what you learned, forget what you learned not to have an immune response against that microbe. Let's go hog wild because we want you to attack that melanoma. And it's been amazing if you have a melanoma. But we've learned that this can cause autoimmunity, right? This can cause autoimmunity. And it can cause IBD that for all intents and purposes, oh, I apologize, looks like, you know, looks like what we normally treat for IBD. I had gone back, but that's okay. Turns out that this is just a report that just came out that fecal transplants can treat this kind of colitis as well. So again, with the, you know, maybe we should be putting away healthy stool. Okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip this slide and just show you this, this concept slide, which is to say, you know, what I view is that this is a two-compartment model that we, that we need to, to come to terms with. On the one side is all the genetic polymorphisms leading to an immune response that is primed to have a robust response against things that it's being perceived as pathogens. And then this multitude of different uh, bacteria, fungi, viruses that are probably just the same as all these polymorphisms. They're the one, they're, it's like a different kind of polymorphism, right? This polymicrobial thing. And that ultimately, I think that for the garden variety IBD, we need to both uh, have, a, have, a, have a plan for the immune response and have a plan for the microbiome and, and probably be deploying these things simultaneously in order to make headway. And these are going to need to be personalized approaches. So uh, with that, you know, I, have, I work with absolutely fabulous people. The, the two in bold, Judith and uh, Julia, helped me the most in, in, in pulling together some of the conceptual slides. Thank you guys for giving me the extra few minutes to cure IBD. Thank you.